Welcome to the Ravages History Podcast. In January 1767, the monsoon rains were coming to an end. The flooded lowlands were drying up, and provisions inside the inland island city were starting to run low. The city had been under siege for nearly a full year, the culmination of two invasions over the last decade. The two kingdoms had been fighting each other for centuries, but before this latest round of hostilities, they had actually been at peace for nearly a hundred years. The first conflict broke out over control of a coastal region called the Tenasserim Coast. A new royal dynasty had emerged in the Kingdom of Burma, and they wanted to re-establish control over the area, which at the time was controlled by the Siamese Kingdom of Ayutthaya. If you're at all familiar with maps of modern-day Myanmar and Thailand, you'll know of the long peninsula that stretches from the mainland into the Pacific to the south. It's called the Malay Peninsula, and today the top, about third of that peninsula, is split in half by Myanmar and Thailand, while the middle third is Thai and the bottom third is Malaysia, with Singapore sitting right at the very bottom. Around that Tenasserim coast, in the north of the peninsula, was a people called the Mon, and the Siamese were providing support to the Mon rebels who were causing all sorts of problems for the Burmese. The new royal dynasty, the Komwang dynasty, made demands to the Siamese to hand over the leaders of the rebels and to put a stop to their encroachments into what they considered to be their territory, which the Siamese refused to do. But before we talk about the conflict that's about to break out, it's important to understand the reason why there had been such a long peace between these two historical enemies, and how the years leading up to the conflict shaped those who led it. It's difficult to find good, detailed sources on this time period, and even more difficult to find those sources in English. But it looks like in 1597, all the regions in Burma were rebelling, and what used to be one united kingdom was split into several kingdoms, who spent the next 150 years fighting each other and the neighbouring kingdom of Ayutthaya, China, and others. In the midst of the chaos, a man called Ang Zaya was born in 1714. He was born in a village 60 miles northwest of a city called Ava, the capital of the kingdom of Ava. The area he grew up in was militarily and politically weak, with raids being a constant problem. With a lack of any real authority in the region, Angzea was able to stand up. In his 20s, he became the chief of his village, and throughout the valley, where other villages were located, he was seen as a good leader. He took responsibility for the defence against the raids himself, and he was then picked out by the high authorities to become the deputy of the Lord Chief of the whole valley. He was just 22. Ava was weak, losing territory all the time to other kingdoms and rebellions. In 1740, Lower Burma broke away from the Ava kingdom. Led by the Mon, a new kingdom was founded that they called the Restored Hanthawadi Kingdom, with a new capital at Pegu. Ava utterly failed in retaking the south, but the two kingdoms continued fighting each other through raids and skirmishes for the next 11 years. Suddenly, in 1751, Pegu launched a massive attack against Ava. And Pegu wasn't alone. They were backed by the French, who supplied them with weapons that were vastly more advanced than anything Ava had. And taking part in the fighting were mercenaries from Portugal and the Netherlands. 
At the beginning of 1752, the army was at the gates of Ava, and Pegu sent out emissaries to the rest of the kingdom, ordering Upper Burma to accept the new rulers. Angzea chose to resist, and he managed to persuade a whole bunch of other villages in the region to join him. There were plenty of willing people who were basically seeking revenge for all the raids and fighting that had been going on throughout their whole lives. On the full moon of February 1752, just as Pegu forces were ready to finally breach the walls of Ava, Angzea proclaimed himself king, giving himself the royal name of Alongpea, the first of a new Kombuang dynasty. But after the city fell, Alongpea's own father urged him to give up resistance before it even started. He told Alongpea that it didn't matter how many men he had, nor how ready they were to fight. They had only a few muskets and a small wooden wall. Ava was a great, heavily fortified city, with tall, heavy walls and formidable defences. Supposedly, Alangpaya replied, quote, When fighting for your country, it matters little whether there are few or many. What does matter is that your comrades have true hearts and strong arms. End quote. And with that, he began building defences around his village. He built a better stockade, a wall, and dug a moat around the village before clearing the surrounding jungle. Finally, all the ponds and wells located outside his new walls were filled. Here's the thing, Alangpaya wasn't a shining light for others to rally behind. There were dozens of other villages and towns rising up against the Hathawadi regime. But what is remarkable about this story is that Hathawadi believed that taking Ava was all they really needed to do to control Upper Burma. And then they withdrew two-thirds of their army back to Pegu leaving just 10,000 men in the region. Twice, forces were sent to Alangpaya's village, which were both completely destroyed. So a much larger force was sent against him, but the village not only survived the siege, but they were able to launch an attack of their own and force the besieging army into a flight. And with this, news spread of the new king, who was successfully fighting off the hated invaders, and both men and arms flocked to his banner. By December of the next year, Alangpaya and his allies had driven much of the Hathawadi forces from their outposts north of Ava. Back when the campaign first started, Alangpaya's 15-year-old son, Mong Ya, had joined him, and by now, December 1753, he was considered a great commander in his own right. Now, 17 years old, Ya was put in charge of the recapture of the city, Ava. On the 3rd of January, the assault began, and was a huge success the remaining Hathawadi forces were forced to flee the city. Alangpaya made Ya the governor of the reclaimed city. Only now, after such huge setbacks, did the rest of the Pegu army return to Upper Burma. But the forces were beaten and driven back, and the war moved into the south, where it took on a different face. What was originally a struggle between two kingdoms quickly became an ethnic struggle between the northern Burmese and the southern Mon. The Hathawadi regime began rounding up and killing huge numbers of ethnic Burmese living in the south, causing countless others to flee and swell the ranks of Alangpaya's army. In 1755, Alangpaya launched an invasion of Lower Burma. They were doing very well until they reached the port city of Siriam, which was defended by the French. Alangpaya had been in talks with the English over setting up an alliance, but it never really got anywhere and Syrian fell after a 14-month siege. In 1757, Alangpaya and his son sacked 
the Hathawadi capital, Pegu. Within two years of the fall of Pegu, Alangpaya had reunited all of Burma, including seizing territory from the Chinese. To the east, the kingdom of Ayutthaya was going through what was being called a golden age. It had been in contact with western travellers, and over the previous 150 years became the heart of a trade route between the west and parts of the far east like China and Japan. Those most active western countries were the French and Dutch, but there were many others, and all the trade made the kingdom of Ayutthaya, known to the west as the kingdom of Siam, very, very prosperous. The author George Madolsky, writing in the 20th century, believed that by 1700, Ayutthaya may have been the largest city in the world at the time, with a population of over a million. This was also the time when the kingdom's power had the farthest reach, in the south as far as the Islamic state at the bottom of the Malay Peninsula I talked about earlier. In the north, they held cities in what is modern-day northern Thailand. In the east, they owned Angkor, in modern-day Cambodia, and in the west, they had control over that coastal region we talked about at the very beginning in modern-day Myanmar. But the power of the kingdom began to fall through the 18th century. Fighting broke out between various princes and officials in the kingdom over control of the kingdom. As time went on, regions farthest away from the capital began to ignore Ayutthaya, eventually proclaiming independence. There was little that could be done about it because of all the infighting, but Ayutthaya was still a rich and powerful city, the largest and wealthiest in all of Southeast Asia at the time. But they still feared a united Burma. The history of the region, more than five centuries of history, consisted of Burmese armies entering various regions of Siam and sacking cities. In fact, Ayutthaya had already been sacked once before, so Siam was always afraid of a united Burma. Their whole foreign policy had been to help keep the country divided, offering help to one side to fight the other. Now the country was united, they were going to give help to the defeated Mon by actively supporting the rebels in an effort to split the country once again. But all the rebellions against Alangpaya and his new kingdom were put down, and the king now turns his attention to Siam and the Ayutthaya kingdom. Concerned for the safety of his new unifying kingdom, he needed to crush the Siamese and retake territory that used to be Burmese. All the demands made by Alangpaya of the Siamese were refused, and in 1759 both sides began preparing for war. There are a lot of mixed views as to what exactly caused this war, with heavy bias on both sides. The atrocities that would be carried out are still a huge bone of contention even today, and historians on either side of the debate heavily blame the other side for starting the war. There is a general agreement that the support of the Mon and their raids by the Siamese was enough to start the war. They don't all agree on additional motives that have been thrown out there. An image has been painted of Alangpaya as a bloodthirsty warmonger who wanted to restore an old empire that included much of Siam. A man who simply couldn't settle for a peaceful existence after he united his country and so went out looking for conquest. The historian David Wyatt wrote in The History of Thailand regarding that Alangpaya was, quote, apparently a rather crude country fellow with scant experience of statecraft, was simply continuing to do what he earlier demonstrated he could do best, lead armies in warfare, end quote. Naturally, Burmese historians counter these arguments about the man they consider to be one of the three greatest kings in their history. But the whole thing is a real mess with writings and sources through the biased lens of nationalism. 
In his book Burma, historian D.G.E. Hall, attempting to find a more balanced view, writes that the chronic raiding by both the Siamese and the Mon rebels, quote, alone would have caused adequate causes belli, end quote. But he goes on to describe Alan Pyre as, quote, a monarch unable to settle down to a peaceable existence, end quote. In 2004, in the book Burma Siam Wars and Tenasserim, Helen James talked about the likeliness that Alan Pyre wanted to take over the trade routes through Ayutthaya. And if you think about it, it's not at all difficult to believe. Siam is now a wealthy and prosperous country. They have lots of money. The capital of their kingdom is one of the largest cities on the planet. While Burma is now a poor country, they've just come out of a civil war that turned into an ethnic war. Rebellions are a constant threat, and the only foothold in the West Burma had, that port city, Syrium, well, Alan Pyre just threw the French out of there, didn't he? So now where's his trade with the West coming from? Right now, the answer is nowhere. So who was leading Ayutthaya at this point? A year before the war broke out, the Ayutthayan king Boromakot died. He had several sons, and his eldest was known as Ekatat. Before Boromakot died, he decided he wanted his younger son, Utampon, to be the heir to the throne, skipping over Ekatat. His father believed Ekatat was incompetent and wouldn't see him take any real power. Ekatat actually means the one with one eye. It's believed he lost it earlier in his life. And when he ultimately became king, the people would call him Kun Luang Ki Ruen, meaning the mangy king. It's believed the name was a result of the king possibly suffering from leprosy. So what happened to Utampon? Well, he was crowned king after Boromakot died, but these two were not the only brothers in the family, and fighting between princes had been a problem for several generations. There were three other half-brothers of Utampon and Ekatat, and a civil war broke out. Ekatat bowed out early, entering a priesthood and becoming a monk, but the other brothers allowed the civil war to rage, despite the massive threat a new united Burma posed. But then Ekatat left his priesthood suddenly, and had his three half-brothers, who were fighting the crown king, executed. Next, probably afraid for his own life, Utampon abdicated the throne in favour of Ekatat. Untampon, like his brother had before him, became a monk, choosing to practice in a temple away from the city, where he posed little threat to Ekatat. It was Ekatat who refused Alangpaya's demands, and he was the king when war broke out. Ekatat's plan for the war was a defensive one. They couldn't be sure where Alangpaya would attack from, but the most of the previous invasions had come from the west via a pass known as the Three Pagodas Pass, so that's where the majority of the Ayutian forces were deployed. Other defensive forces were also deployed to the south, 7,000 men and 300 cavalry, to protect that pass to the city. The city itself had its defences improved. It was already formidable, sitting on an island created by the meeting of three rivers that acted as moats. Defending the city were about 20,000 men, 1,000 cavalry and 500 elephants. It took Alangpaya nearly half a year to build his invasion force of 40,000 men, including some 3,000 cavalry. Alangpaya knew where Akatat would be concentrating his forces, and planned to go around the Three Pagodas Pass through the disputed Tenasserim territory, across the Tenasserim hills to the Gulf of Siam, near modern-day Bangkok, and move north to Ayutthaya. Alangpaya would lead the invasion personally, with his son, now calling himself Prince Sinbayushin, appointed as second in command. 
Sinbayushin took the vanguard of the army, 5,000 men, south, beyond the Three Pagodas. They entered the city of Tavoy. Here is when we get the first glimpse of how the Burmese were going to fight this war. The governor of Tavoy had been playing tributes to both the Burmese and Siamese. With it being a border town, he was torn between the two powers. Simbayushin had him executed. Over the next three days, the rest of the army arrived by land and sea, before moving onto the positions occupied by the small Siamese defence force of 7,000. The force was easily overrun by the large Burmese army, and in less than two weeks, the entire Tenasarim coast, the region at the centre of the war, had been captured by the Burmese. But Alangpaya wasn't finished there. The Siamese would be on their way, and so he followed through with his plan and crossed the Tenasarim hills. A 20,000-man strong Siamese army was there waiting for him, along with a 1,000 cavalry and a further 7,000 men that had retreated from Tenasarim. The two armies clashed in an area called Khoiburi, along the coast of the Gulf of Siam. The 40,000-strong Burmese army easily overwhelmed what was pretty weak resistance from the Siamese, who quickly retreated north. But now, Alangpaya would start to face much stiffer defence. Despite gaining 20,000 more reinforcements and 4,000 cannons which were divided between his land force and navy, the march along the coast was slow, and over the next two months there were several bold stands by the Siamese forces. But the Burmese overcame them all. At the end of the two months, they captured Ratchaburi, allowing them to break away from the narrow coast where the army was vulnerable and enter mainland Siam towards the end of March 1760. The next big stand would be in Supanburi, west of Ayutthaya. There, an important river divided the two provinces. A huge Siamese army of 33,000 men were called upon to defend the river crossing and stop the Burmese traversing the river. Sin Bayusin led a third of the Burmese army, the centre of a three-pronged attack against the Siamese. Despite severe losses from the heavily fortified Siamese positions, the Burmese ultimately won the battle and gained control of the key crossing. They even managed to capture some of the Siamese war elephants. Despite their heavy losses, the Burmese couldn't rest, as the monsoon season was just a month away. Even today, weather can have a profound effect on the outcome of a battle, and even an entire war. Here in the West, we know just how powerful winter can be, and the Russians know better than anyone how much of a help the winter can be. During the Second World War, they nicknamed it General Winter because of just how badly it affected the generals, who were totally unprepared for the temperatures that are estimated to have alone caused the death of 23% of the German forces in Russia in the first five months of the invasion. That's nearly 800,000 men. Storms have also destroyed navies and entire invasion forces. The North Sea claimed much of the Spanish Armada, an estimated 5,000 men drowned when the ships were smashed against the rocks of England and Ireland. If you've ever visited a tropical climate during monsoon season, you know just how wet it can get. As someone who's come from a pretty mild climate, I found my first monsoon season in Southeast Asia to be pretty shocking. The rain falls at times so hard it can actually hurt. Flash floods are sudden and can be devastating, and the strong winds that accompany the daily thunderstorms will take down anything that isn't firmly held in place. The plains surrounding the city were low-leveled and famously flooded every year during the monsoon season, meaning no army could maintain a siege. This had saved Ayutthaya in the past. 
the city being built on high ground and surrounded by rivers that flooded into the fields away from the city, and the walls protecting it from any flooding towards it, left it strong enough and well supplied enough to hold out until the monsoon rains arrived, forcing any besieging army to lift the siege. The Burmese were already beginning to suffer, with something like half of their remaining soldiers contracting dysentery, and Alan Pyre himself was also sick. But the Burmese hadn't fought all this way to go home empty-handed. They arrived outside Ayutthaya on the 11th of April, 1760, and surrounded it, beginning the fifth siege in the city's history. The best of the Siamese army had been crushed at Supanburi. All Ayutthaya could muster now were raw recruits with no training and poor equipment. 15,000 of these men were raised and thrown against the highly trained, experienced, disciplined, well-equipped and much larger Burmese army. The outcome was inevitable. They failed to break the siege, and so it continued. But the Burmese didn't want a long siege. They wanted to be done with it before the rains came, and so they sent envoys to the city to open negotiations with Ekatat. Ekatat sent his own envoys, but they failed to come to an agreement. This wasn't a bad thing for Ekatat. He could see the Burmese were not at all at full strength. They were suffering far more than his people inside the city, and he knew the rains would arrive soon, which would make conditions outside the city even worse for his enemies. Three days after the siege began, the Burmese took their big guns and began shooting at the city walls. But overnight, Alan Pyers' already bad health deteriorated rapidly. The sources are mixed as to exactly what was wrong with him, but the most plausible explanation was that he was suffering from dysentery. The high command kept the king's illness a secret, ordering a general withdrawal from the city, using the pretext the king was indisposed. The general, Ming Kung Narata, was chosen personally by Alan Paya to command the rear guard. He was told to pick his best men, 500 cavalry and 6,000 infantry, and give them each a musket. They were spread out behind the city, while the rest of the army was retreating. After two days, Ekatat realised the main Burmese army was gone, and he sent the full force of the Siamese out of the city. Ming Kung watched as he and his men were encircled as they fought back. One of his men begged the general to allow them to retreat and fight further back from the city, to which the general replied, quote, Friends, the safety of our lord the king lies in our keeping. Let us not fight further back, lest the sounds of guns break his further sleep. End quote. But they did manage to break away, and he led the remains of the force back in good order after enough time had passed for the main army to get away. Less than a month later, Alangpaya, the king of Burma, died. At that point, the war ended. Over the next five years, rebellions broke out across Burma. Cities vying for independence, regions in revolt, generals in leadership bids, and the sons of the dead Alangpaya positioning themselves to take sole control of the throne. Three years after Alangpaya died, Simbayushin ascended to the throne, putting down the myriad rebellions and leadership challenges. He spent the next two years preparing to go to war again with Siam. Because of all the various rebellions and infighting, Burma lost almost all of their gains from the invasion. But they did manage to hold on to the upper Terracinium coast. Siam went on to continue to support the Mon rebels, hoping to destabilise the country once again, but it failed. And two years after he gained the throne, in 1765, Sinbayushin reinvaded Siam. In the first 
invasion, the initial success of the Burmese was because they moved around the strong defences. But when they reached the narrow coast, they started to lose men and resources. Their advance was slowed right down against stiff opposition. But despite that opposition, the Burmese were still able to beat the Siamese forces again and again. It's a story that is played out over and over in history. The harsh lives of the Burmese in the pre-war years hardened them. Their leaders had battle experience, and they were the leaders because they had risen to the top through their ability to lead and fight and win battles. Compare that to the Siamese, who had lived in peace for generations. Their leaders had no military experience, and were there because they were born to the positions. A serious lack of experience from that leadership led to failings against an army in enemy territory with overall fewer numbers. With the failings to consolidate anything from the invasion, it was inevitable there would be a second war. Knowing this, and with the rise of Symbiushin, the Siamese prepared their defences. With the surprise of the route the Burmese took in the previous invasion, Ekatat bolstered his defences across the country, concentrating on the three routes into Siam and towards Ayutthaya. The whole kingdom was mobilised on a scale not seen before, which allowed them to place 60,000 men in the southern defences. It isn't known how many men were stationed in the north, but they were definitely a far smaller force than in the south. They built forts and relied on setting up strong points that would hold any invading Burmese army until the main Siamese army arrived. To the west, along the famous and heavily defended and fortified Three Pagodas Pass, Ekadat stationed some of his supposedly best men. Sinbayushin drew on his experience in the previous invasion. Instead of relying on one army, he built two, planning on a giant pincer movement hitting Ayutthaya from the north and the south. In the north, the Burmese fought a series of war with the states north of the kingdom of Ayutthaya to give them a better position to launch the northern wing of their invasion. In the end, they had a 20,000-man army sitting on the border, ready to invade. In the south, a 30,000-man army was prepared and ready to invade. 50,000 men were ready to throw themselves at the Siamese defences. But Ayutthaya wasn't what it had been during the previous invasion. It turned out that the previous king had been right to worry about giving Ekatat any power, since Ekatat had sent the state into turmoil. The Siamese chronicles talk about Ekatat's fall in moral standing, unable to resist the temptations that the courts of such a powerful wealthy state offered. They talk specifically about the pleasures he took of many concubines, which seemed to have distracted him from the office of statesman and leader that he needed to be during the war years. Other sources, including a few Burmese ones, seem to show that many of the allies Ayutthaya relied on were leaving the kingdom, and contact between Ayutthaya and several of its allied cities on the edge of its domain was lost. Western sources from the time report that Ekatat managed to bankrupt the court. With all of this, the picture of Ekatat is not a good one. Reading through the different sources, I kept getting the picture of one of those bad Roman emperors. Not the truly awful ones like Caligula, but maybe more of a Nero. They both seem to have governed effectively in the beginning, but yeah, also had family members and apparent loved ones killed, so swings and roundabouts, I guess. In August of 1765, the invasion began in the north. It actually began right in the middle of the monsoon season, but the northern armies had much further to travel than the southern armies. 
but rains held them up for longer than was originally planned, along with towns and forts that would just not capitulate. But by the end of the monsoon season, the Burmese had taken a key city at the most southerly point of the northern regions of Siam. In October of that year, after the monsoon rains had ended, the southern front was opened. It was launched from three different directions. If you remember, the army was 30,000 men strong, but an unknown number of men were left to defend the Burmese border. The numbers of the different invasion forces are confused, with different sources giving different accounts. What we know for sure is that the army was split into two small armies and one larger force, with the larger force being around 20,000 men. Each force invaded through different routes. One of the two smaller forces headed through the Three Pagodas Pass, the other down the Tenasserim coast. The large 20,000-man force attacked Kanchanaburi, now the location of the famous bridge over the River Kwai, which fell with almost no resistance. This is where, once again, sources get confusing. Siamese chronicles seem to think the main attack came up along the Siam Gulf, the same route as the last invasion. Yet because of the different route the Burmese had taken along that coast, they would have emerged even further south than the previous invasion. The Burmese were relying on surprise, since time was a crucial factor. Why would they have sent the main army along the same route that was heavily defended by those 60,000 men, triple the Burmese numbers, along a route that had proven to be slow and difficult enough without a large army to defend it? Burmese sources say that the southern army going along the coast was just a small diversionary force. But the Siamese sources are adamant that the main Burmese army took that southern route along the coast. Alan Paya, with the element of surprise and relatively little in the way of opposition numbers, took three months to travel up the coast before breaking into mainland Siam. But it would take the new invasion force just over two months to travel all the way to Ayutthaya, something that wouldn't have been possible if they'd taken that southern route. In my opinion, it is the surprise of a totally new route that led to Kanchanaburi very quickly falling. They didn't have much of a garrison to defend the city, and they weren't expecting to be involved in the fighting at all. The Burmese moved quickly after this victory, marching onto Nantaburi, a city less than 40 miles south of Ayutthaya. Along the way, they faced no real opposition. But at Nantaburi, the Siamese were finally able to put an army in the field against the Burmese, who had so far been able to march around their armies. The Burmese dug in, building a small fort, while the Siamese launched an attack from both land and sea, using English ships to bombard the fort with their heavy cannons, while the ground forces stormed it. But the Burmese managed to hold their lines, while the Siamese broke and fled. When news reached the English ship, they too left leaving the gulf and heading to the sea. But the battle gave the massive 60,000-man Siamese army time to travel north and set up just outside Ayutthaya. Despite having three times as many men, the Siamese were utterly defeated, the army massacred by the battle-hardened, brutal Burmese soldiers. There were few survivors, but those who did survive fled to the city. But the army didn't move on the city straight away. Instead, they pulled back a little, they may have scored an amazing victory, but their ranks had been depleted. So the general spent the next few months conscripting Siamese, who lived in the area, into his army. While all this was going on in the south, the northern army had gone on to capture two more cities, before pausing for around four months. Like the southern army, the victories had taken their toll on the ranks, and the army needed to be refilled. 
Another battle followed, and it was another catastrophic defeat for the Siamese. This is when the kingdom fell apart, leaving the city completely alone. The northern army began moving south. The wars in the north are difficult to put together, with Burmese and Siamese sources telling very different stories, which is why I haven't concentrated on it in any great detail. But all was not well back in Burma. The Chinese were now attacking Burma in the north. The Chinese force was a small one, and the Burmese forces still in Burma were able to repulse them. But that didn't end the war, and the Chinese would be back soon with a far larger army. Simbayushin wanted to take Ayutthaya, and he refused to recall the armies, believing that the war with China could be contained to the border. Back in Siam, the combined Burmese armies had been reinforced by Siamese conscripts, and now the army was 50,000 men strong. In January 1766, they moved on Ayutthaya. But Ayutthaya had also managed to put another army together, the same size as the Burmese one, 50,000 men. The Siamese went out, desperately trying to prevent a siege of the city. And for the first time in these two wars, the Siamese were actually doing well in the battle, with one wing pushing the Burmese back. It really sounded like they were on the verge of collapsing. But on the other wing, the Burmese managed to get around the Siamese and cut the army in half. The Siamese vanguard were now encircled and few men survived. With its vanguard encircled and being cut to pieces, the rest of the Siamese force broke and retreated back to the city. In February 1766, the city was put under siege, but it wasn't unprepared. The experience in the previous war had shown the Siamese that their armies didn't stand much of a chance against those of the Burmese on the battlefield. And with that in mind, the city's defences had been bolstered. A high wall had been constructed around the city, designed to survive the bombardments from the Burmese cannons. Outside the walls were wide, muddy trenches, while on top of them were their own cannons that had been collected and stockpiled over the last five to six years. Also outside the walls were stockades surrounding smaller hard points of resistance, creating funnels for men to move around more freely outside the city and defend it more easily against attacks. They also had their greatest ally on the way. The monsoon season was just three to four months away, and the rains that would come with it would just swallow the whole area around the city, and the Siamese believed it would force the Burmese to retreat. With less than four months, the Burmese launched attacks almost immediately, but the defences were too formidable. They couldn't break through the walls, and their cannons couldn't set up directly outside the walls because of the ditches, trenches and stockades. Though a few did get close, their numbers were so small they were easily brought down by muskets on the top of the walls. So the Burmese dug their own trenches and completely encircled the city. Their plan was to starve it out. But the city was well supplied, they had enough to last them well into the monsoon season, long after the army would have retreated. The Burmese generals in charge of the siege were advised to break off as the rainy season approached, but they wouldn't have it. Simbayushin wanted the city destroyed and he had left two very capable commanders to the job. They were not going to disappoint their king. So they needed a new plan to counter the effects of the rain and the floods. To that end, they sent out men to collect the boats from the three rivers that met at the city and began building artificial embankments from the soil dug to make the trenches and miniature ports on whatever bit of high ground they could find that might stay above the flooding. When the rains came, all of the Burmese trenches that had been dug were the first to fill. Then the rivers began to rise, burst their banks and flood the plain. 
With the plane flooded, the Burmese army was broken up into small groups that desperately held on to the artificial embankments. Reports of disease among the Burmese forces begin to show up, and seeing their enemies split up and severely weakened, the Siamese attacked. They had their own boats within the city and put together a rudimentary navy, despite being something like 80 miles or more from the nearest coast. Nevertheless, the navy made several raids against the Burmese trying to dislodge them from the embankments, but the Burmese had prepared well and used their own inland navy, put together from the boats they collected in the months before, to see the Siamese off. The Siamese failed to break the siege, and the monsoon they thought would save them actually cost them dearly. The Burmese posted soldiers further back behind the siege lines, where they were able to grow their own rice and other food supplies and get access to fresh water. They also used their boats to prevent any Siamese boats from resupplying Ayutthaya. Never expecting to need to hold out for this long, the city's provisions were running low. By November, the rains had come to an end and the ground was drying up. Now much of the stockades were gone and the Burmese were able to build new trenches even closer to the city than before. They also built on their embankments, raising them higher than even the city walls in places. At the top of these embankments, they set up their cannons. Since they weren't able to assault the walls directly, the cannons now fired into the city and were even able to hit the royal palace. In December, another couple of regions within Siam, led by an ambitious governor called Taksim, put together a relief force, put it on boats and tried to relieve the city from the river. But when it failed and one of the other governors was killed, Taksim was blamed and called incompetent. The blame game didn't matter now. The city was starving and it even started to burn when a fire broke out. Back in Burma, the Chinese launched a second attack, increasing the number of soldiers from 6,000 used in the first one to 25,000. But Simbayushin was not willing to give up the siege of Ayutthaya yet. In January, he sent word to his generals sieging the city to get it over with quickly and return to Burma where they were needed to help defend the capital Ava. Ekatat was now really panicking, and he tried to escape the capital. But after he failed, he sent word to the Burmese with an offer of becoming a tributary, meaning they'd pay the Burmese off with money or supplies or whatever they wanted to have to stop the siege. But the generals were not interested, and replied telling him they would only accept a full and unconditional surrender. There are some accounts that say Ekatat eventually managed to escape the city, but the same sources say that the nobles of the city then surrendered the city to the Burmese, but that doesn't match with the accounts of how they finally managed to break through the walls. In the months leading up to March 1766, the Burmese had been digging tunnels under the walls and mining the tunnels out, severely weakening the walls' foundations. Towards the end of March, the tunnels and mines collapsed, bringing whole sections of the wall with them. The Burmese troops entered the city. The Siamese troops did what they could to fight them off, even within, but they were quickly overcome and slaughtered. And it wasn't just the soldiers who were slaughtered. A city with an estimated population of a million people was put to the torch. The women raped and murdered. The men forced to watch before themselves being slaughtered. Anything that could burn was burnt. And to the horror of the deeply religious Siamese people, statues and other images of Buddha were destroyed, stripped for the gold they were coated in. The Grand Palace, the home of the kings of five dynasties that had stood for four centuries, was stripped of all its value, then torched. The entire city was reduced to ashes and blood, with unknown thousands dead. But those who died were considered the lucky ones. A few decades later, a contemporary described the scene, quote, 
the populace was afflicted with a variety of ills by the enemy. Some wandered about, starving, searching for food. They were bereft of their families, their children and wives, and stripped of their possessions and tools. They had no rice, no fish, no clothing. They were thin, their bodies wasting away. They found only the leaves of trees and grass to eat. In desperation, many turned to banditry. They gathered in bands and plundered for rice and paddy and salt. Some found food and others could not. They grew thinner and their flesh and blood wasted away. Afflicted with a thousand ills, some died and some lived on. End quote. Ekatat's body was found in a nearby forest, apparently identified by his brother Utampon, who had chosen to have no part of the war and stayed a practicing monk. It's written that Ekatat had starved to death after somehow escaping the city, either just before or just after the Burmese entered. Utampon and hundreds of other nobles and royal family members who survived the sack were taken captive by the Burmese, along with tens of thousands of surviving Siamese people. Now the army had plundered everything of value and torched the great city, they had to return to their homeland to help defend against the Chinese. They didn't return alone, they took their captives all the way back with them and resettled them across Burma. Ayutthaya was abandoned and the kingdom that had stood as long as the Grand Palace, more than 400 years, came to an end. In Thailand, the fall is considered one of the greatest catastrophes in the country's history and relations between Thailand and Myanmar are still affected by the event today. A Siamese writer wrote, quote, The king of Hanthawadi waged war like a monarch, but the king of Ava like a robber, end quote. More recent Thai historians have tried to play down the popular views about Myanmar and its history as a savage and aggressive people. If you've read any accounts of the sacking of cities from European histories, Ayutthaya wouldn't stand out. Carthage, where the Romans sieged the city for three years before completely destroying it with such savagery that the general leading the Romans is said to have wept, and the people inside the city killed themselves by throwing themselves off buildings into burning pits instead of falling into the hands of the Romans. In 410, Alaric and the Visigoths sacked the eternal city of Rome, destroying so many famous ancient temples and artifacts. The fall of Constantinople and the city's utterly destroyed in the Islamic world by the Mongols. Sieges and falls of great cities are part of world history. But nonetheless, it doesn't change the views put forward in Thai popular culture and the very real feeling and real world ramifications that still hang over the region today as a result of the sack. Ayutthaya was eventually resettled, and today it is a hugely popular tourist destination. They come to see what's left over after the sack the remains of the temples, Buddhist images, and ruins of walls, homes, and everything else you'd find in a city. After the sack, Siam came back strong, becoming a major military power in mainland Southeast Asia. Just over half a decade later, the Burmese would stop being a major influence in the region and would eventually lose their independence altogether, while a new Siamese empire would stretch north into modern-day Laos, east all the way to the borders of Vietnam, and west into several regions of Burma. Today, Thailand is one of the wealthiest nations in the region, while Myanmar has been shut away from the world for the last half century, embroiled in civil wars of an ethnic nature. In the long run, the sack was almost definitely a good thing for the Siamese, allowing a new empire to rise from the ashes, an empire that could properly defend itself. The new capital, Bangkok, has only been sieged once in its history, and that was by its own people who were besieging French military forces within the city. They successfully ousted the French, and as a result, Siam, unlike all of their neighbours, 
was never colonized by a European power. It's difficult to end with a conclusion that such a horrific incident was probably a good long-term thing. But you know what? That's how history works sometimes. <laughs>